Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the podcast of Community Bible Church. Serving the Rogue Valley from Central Point, Oregon. We are a multi-generational family. Equipping believers to be adopted in, growing up, and reaching out through the gospel. Family, uh, it, it, and in, in fairness, as we come in this morning, I really need you to have your thinking caps on. Um, we're going to be in Psalm 81, and I, I'd like you to have your Bibles, uh, open them up, possibly even, I know it's tough, have a pen in your hand and be willing to put that pen onto the page of Scripture. You may find yourself wanting to mark something. Um, and I'm going to tell you right now, I hate having to deliver this message this morning. Um, I've already, you know, Psalms is really one of my favorite books of the Bible, right? You know, it's a difficult book to preach. Psalm book three. Psalm is written in five different sections, and this is known as book three. There's 17 psalms. Of these 17 psalms, I want you to understand, they are some of the most difficult to preach in all of the book of psalms. And the reason being is, is this is one of the worst or notorious moments in Israeli history. Most of them were written right when Israel is being destroyed by the Babylonians. The, the, the temple is being taken apart systematically. All of the parts will be salvaged back in Babylon. Um, the, the town will be brutally destroyed. The people are being mistreated. Women are being raped. Uh, leaders are being strung up and killed. This is a horrific time. Their, their king will have had his eyes poked out and he will go back to Babylon and he will live in house arrest for more than 20-some years. This is a horrific time. And you've, you've seen what we've talked about so far. Essentially, the first two weeks, God, where are you? How come you're not helping us out here? And then we, we saw two weeks ago, God essentially saying, wait a second, guys, Remember who I am. I'm in control, you're not. I didn't come and join you, you came and joined me. You're on my side. So I'll judge fairly, but he really doesn't explain to them why he's doing what he's doing. Last week we continued on and we saw that God talked about his character and how incredible he is. Today... He forces all of us as his followers to look in the mirror. And there are times when, in fairness, spiritually, we don't want to look in the mirror, do we? There are days when we just don't want to look in the mirror anyway, all right? From bad hair days to weight gain that you simply can go, oh my, all right? You don't want to look in the mirror. Now there's days that's even more difficult, is when you have to look in the mirror spiritually. And I believe them to be some of our ugliest moments. And we have to do that systematically from time to time. We do that because society is already doing it for us, aren't they? 
they look at the church, and haven't they accused the church of, of every offense you can imagine? From hypocritical behavior to, to sinful behavior to materialism to political misadventure to homophobic or transphobic. I mean, we are accused of everything. And whether all of that is true or not, that is a condemnation of us. And so there are people who say, I hate church. And that's on one side. But let's also be honest. If we turned this morning to Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and God takes an a overview of seven key churches that existed in Turkey at that time, Jesus would condemn them of virtually every sin imaginable. And at the end of the day, Jesus himself might say, man, I hate organized church. But the hard part is, is this. He never said stop coming. He encouraged them to say repent. In other words, take a hard look in the mirror and then do something about it. And those sins covered every area of life. I wouldn't want to have been the, the church of Ephesus because he compliments me over and over and over again for all of the things I'm doing right. And then he says, but you don't love me. And what a tragedy to be in an honest evaluation where you do everything right spiritually. But when it comes to looking in the mirror and somebody asks you, but do you really love Jesus? You'd have to take a hard statement and say, no. I just do this because it's better for me than the other way. What a terrible reality. And so there are times when we have to take this hard look at ourselves, and it's not an easy thing. Family, it's even more difficult as Jesus does it, we can say, well, that's Jesus. He's perfect. But you see, the church is expected to have godly men and women to be watching over it all of the time. Then I want you to hear me out and hear me clear. I have six weeks to go. Let me tell you what I'm looking forward on day seven. I'm off the hot seat. Acts 20, verse 28, talks about a group of men, the elders, of which I am the most visible representative. And he looks down and he gives us one of the most painful reality statements that we have. Pay close attention to yourself. Constantly look in the mirror. Then he looks down and then adds quickly this. For they care for the church of God. And what a terrible reality. First, Timothy does, encourages the same thing out of the ladies of their church to watch over. And older ladies to, to look at younger ladies and care and encourage them to live a life of purity. What a difficult assignment that always is. And so, 
the hard job this morning will not be to point a finger. It's easy in a marriage, isn't it? To point a finger at the spouse. All right? Kathy's always at fault. I haven't done anything wrong in 44 years. It's harder to look in the mirror, isn't it? And then honestly say, wow, the fault, the misstep, why we aren't on a team as a family is my fault. And so this morning, that's where we're going to go. We're, we're, we're asked by God to come to this psalm. And God has used it to challenge not only his people in the Old Testament, but his people in the new. And so we're going to go into a journey this morning, and, and you need to understand the hardest position this morning is mine. Because it's so much easier to talk about joyful worship. It's another thing to talk about our look in the mirror. So we're going to read the whole psalm together. And you'll join me here on the screen. You'll be in your Bibles. I've asked you to turn your Bibles so that you have them before you. Because once we've read this, we'll, we'll preach through it and I'll mention verses, but we won't come to those phrases again. So I want them to be in your mind. So join with me as we read. Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song. Sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon, on, the, on our feast day. For it is a statue for Israel, a rule for the God of Jacob. He made it a, a decree in Joseph when he went over, or when he out over the land of Egypt. I hear a language I had not known. I realized your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah, Selah. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you, O Israel. If you would but listen to me, there shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out or up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to me, or did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe towards him, and their fate would last forever but he would feed you with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. And so family, uh, we see God's evaluation of, of the church. And what I want you to see is as he attacked first Israel and left by inspiration this evaluation of his people throughout all times, he wants us to look in the mirror and I want you to see in these first five verses that, that God commands us to worship. We're encouraged to joyfully worship God. Now, 
I take that to mean that he asks us to worship him internally, passionately, creatively, consistently, and sacrificially. Now that's a sermon in itself, but let me walk with you. God asks you first to look at your response in worship internally. So the question always has to be with us, um, how ready are you to worship 24-7? Is your heart desiring to worship? Um, You need to hear me out and hear me well. My favorite time of the week is this one right here. Not here when I'm here, but down there when the team's leading. Because I get to join with all of you in, in song. Now, I have Spotify. They're better singers than you. I get to pick songs that I like every time. I can never blame anyone when my playlist is my favorites. And I get to hear the originally written words and hear it from the the recording artists themselves, doesn't compare to you. Doesn't compare to you. I join with God's people, and what a pleasure that is. Some of your voices are miserable. But do you know something? To watch your face in worship is my treasure. To see you thank God is my treasure. The worst thing that you and I can ever do is to look at the team up here and blame them that we didn't worship. It has to be first internal on our part. We had to prepare. And whenever we walk out and say, well, it wasn't that song I liked. It wasn't this style of music I liked. His his guitar was out of tune and he had a drum today. Whatever we come up with, if it's not first internally, then we're missing the whole point. And, And if we have to rely on external things to make our worship impactful, we've missed the whole point of being here. So when you come to worship, how well prepared are you? I, I love the fact, and in fairness to many of you families, I love the fact that I get to come to, to, to church with just my wife and not a car full of kids. I'm honest with you. I've, I've been with you guys. I know, I know what you're experiencing. And you spend 20 minutes to get here yelling at children to get dressed, to behave, to be clean, to get that cow licked down at one last time before it rises up again. I, I've been there. All right? And yet at the same time, you have to ask yourself the hard question. How much of that is important compared to what you're coming to? How much of your children are going to be getting something from what's going on over there in the next few minutes versus the cowlick that you're desperately trying to get over? How much anger, husbands, on the drive-in that you are sensing should be suppressed because you're coming into the presence of God with the people of God. It needs to be internal. Family, the second, it needs to be passionate. Now understand, that is simply not to say 
that we need to be emotionally bizarre. I, you know me on one level, you think I'm outgoing. I'm not. I was born and raised a, a Baptist. Understand, when it comes to things like raising holy hands and doing all of that, I, I didn't know you could. All right? I thought the Presbyterians were one up on the Baptists. And then I come, to, I, I come and I see my, my brothers and sisters from a Nazarene or an Assemblies background, and I see a whole different worship service. And understand what the takeaway is this is, you be you with passion. Why? If you and I don't care about the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the impact that he did upon us, then why come? Why come? Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. Jesus Christ pulled us away from the power of Satan and death. Jesus Christ certified that we would never, ever see the entrance point of hell itself. And Jesus Christ promised that I would see Jesus Christ and the Father face to face. And I can't be excited about that. I can't be passionate about that. Family, he now mentions a bunch of instruments from tambourine and lyre and harp. Family, what I take from that is that we're needing to be creative in worship. And when we come, we should, we should be willingly understanding of all of the effort that the worship team have to put into their own internal and passionate preparation. But then that creativity is now reflective on you and me. And they bring. And our church should be a creative place. And so please understand, whether we're playing an old school hymn, whether we're playing rock, whether we're playing folk, whether we're playing country, whether we're playing rap, please understand that creativity when done internally and passionately as unto the Lord is a privilege that God's given the world to be creative in its worshipful presence before Him. And you and I should be engaged in that. And no one here who has the creative gene should ever say, I don't like dot, 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 because it doesn't have dot, dot, dot. Because you sit in here, dot, dot, dot. So you should be doing something about it, dot, dot, dot. Because your creativity shows itself, and it's been a gift that you've given, been given to CBC. So creativity should be in our worship. I want you to notice consistency should be in your worship. He talks about the, the trumpets blowing. Now, family, that's not part of the worship. That's the call to worship, the shofar. And usually they were all a series of blasts. It wasn't a musical tone 
but more like a corporate direction of order. You know when sometimes you hear that emergency button and it first sounds like an alarm going off, but you know it's an emergency, so you've got to pay attention. The shofar is done to do that. You know what's going on, so you're invited in. And the Israelis were invited in to come to the temple up to seven times a, a year. And family, though they didn't have an organized weekly worship like you and I do, I want you to understand they would have come from hundreds of miles. It would have meant a sacrifice. Unlike anything that you and I understand, we think it's terrible to cross town with a car full of kids. They did so traversing the whole country with their children. They took them from one place to the other. They would have been in Jerusalem for a week. They would have been in Jerusalem for 10 days. They would have been in Jerusalem for two weeks. They would have been to Jerusalem from one Sabbath to the next Sabbath. Over and over again throughout the whole year. And they were called to worship. And it meant being completely disrupted from this location to come to this location. And they were expected to be there by God. And you see in the text of Scripture the idea that it was commanded of them. And that command should have been in loving partnership. They wanted to do what God wanted them to do. And so we see a consistency. And as you and I look into the mirror of our life, do you and I have a consistency in our worship? So that when we come together as a team, what's reflected is an honest, passionate, creative worship that thanks the Lord for what He accomplished in our lives and being the part of His family and being His people. What a unique relationship that we have in this world. And so God calls us to that consistency. And I would suggest, lastly, that it, it, it suggests a financial, a sacrificial, because that sacrifice was both time and money. And how many times have we said, boy, I don't have time to do this. I don't have the resources to do this. When you looked at the consistency of their worship, they had to dislodge their family to come to, to, come to Jerusalem to find living quarters to spend the week, to then give their tithe, to then offer the sacrifice, to give free will act sacrifice so that they could join in different food preparations and opportunities. All of that led to a financial commitment that they had to expect to become part of a God follower. And so when we see worship, we see something that invades every part of our being. It, it meant that when you were a God follower, you and I reorganized our life around the idea that God had invited us into a special relationship with Him. And because He invited us in that relationship, we wanted to be in that relationship. And that want changed our wants. And as it changes our wants, we understand the command to worship because the command now becomes something that we desire. 
So I wanted, I wanted to take you to the, to the idea that not only does he command, but as we look at verses 6 and 7, God reminds us of his gifts to us. And so if you will, I want you to see God's gifts to us. Because he reminds his people that there's a profound connection of grace and loyalty and mercy that exists between them, the people, and God on high. The first readers were going to remember that God brought them out of slavery in Egypt. And it tells us this, though that they know him as God Yahweh. He says, you didn't know the language by which I communicated. And I want you to understand that's somewhat hard to interpret, so I take it to mean this. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 3, it says, But by my name, Yahweh, or the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now what I mean, what I believe he means is, there was never a moment in anything up to the plagues of Egypt where God had explained his power and his authority. There is nothing like the plagues anywhere in Genesis. I challenge you to read them. You don't see anything where God takes a group of people, my people, a whole nation of people, and say, I'm going to make a difference. You're going to be in the land of Goshen. I'm going to strike all of Egypt with darkness. It'll be light in your area. It'll be just like going from one room that has light to one room that has no light. There'll be a difference. You're my people. You're not my people. And you won't obey me. And you're my people. We have nothing like that. We have nothing like the presentation of God in the Shekinah glory as he walks in front of them. And, if you will, a, a cloudy existence and a pillory existence, a fiery existence, shows itself as a thinking entity. We have nothing like that in the Bible. We have nothing like the moment in Mount Sinai when God says he spoke through the thunder, as our text reminds us today. One of the one of the wildest verses that you will read in Exodus 20 is when the people hear the Ten Commandments as uttered by the voice of God, not given to them by Moses, uttered by the voice of God out of the thunder. And God says, or excuse me, the people say, please don't let him say that again. Please don't let him say that. We'll die if we hear that again. We have no example quite like that as Yahweh the intimate name for his people to call him. And his people show an existence and share a life of vitality. We have nothing like He says, I gave you all of that. That was a gift that I gave to you so that you would know who I was. Family, never forget, you and I were saved from the nation of sin. And though we never had a Pharaoh holding us accountable, we were under Satan's authority, known as the prince of the power of the air. 
Family, we never knew God's voice until we had the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit put inside us, who taught us the language of salvation. You were offered a redemption that Jesus gave when he satisfied the anger of God and gave with us a righteousness that we don't understand and we don't deserve when he took on our sin and held us free from all that we have done. God saw our need and cared for us in love. And we have greater gifts than even Psalm 81 can share about Israel. I want you to notice now, in verses 8 and 9, God rebukes his people. Now, his, his, his rebuke is going to focus first on their allegiance. They did not stay loyal to God on high. Yahweh was left over and over and over again in the Old Testament. And if you've read the Old Testament at all, they worshipped the golden calf, and they hadn't, even gotten, they hadn't even gotten six months out of Egypt. The Bible tells us that when they worshipped the, the golden calf, they rose up to play. Forgive me, but that's not baseball or football. The idea behind it is moral. They got up to carouse. They would go on to worship. First, Baal. Baal is known as a storm god. He is the, if you will, the, in the pantheon of gods, he is the, the, the top god. He governed everything. Asherah, his lover, was the goddess of fertility. Moloch might not be a god, Moloch might be a sick, perverted way to treat your children. And a Moloch sacrifice was known as a burning altar. They would take a bronze altar and start with a fire at its feet until the whole thing was red and burning. And then they would take your child and they would lay it into the hands of that statue and allow your child to be burnt to a crisp. Moloch and his sacrifice, they worshipped. They worshipped Chemish, a god associated with war. They worshipped Tammuz, a god associated again with fertility. Even the pole that Moses raised with a snake on it that he had made in the wilderness to protect Israel was turned into something that they worshipped for more than 700 years. Ultimately, they brought the very gods into the temple itself it says that they worshipped carved images, they worshipped the sun, the moon, and the stars. God says, you weren't loyal to me. Not only were they not loyal by allegiance, God condemns them for their behavior. For the most part, allegiance to the gods mentioned created their climate of incredible sin. You see, you can't worship gods like that and not have monstrous impact in your life. And so just to, just to run through the Old Testament quickly, uh, they were guilty of just incredible sin. 
immorality, just in a general way, homosexual and heterosexual prostitution. They practiced witchcraft. They sought the advice from the dead. They slaughtered their children. As we've just mentioned, they murdered God's prophets. Now, family, although we can't look at anything that we have that might take us away from God and identify them in the same way as an Old Testament God. We still need to call the ideas that demand more of our loyalty gods because they take us away from allegiance to Christ. From time to time, we need to, to, to ask tough questions about how we spend our time and our money, what we, what we spend time thinking about and what gives us joy. When money and, and, and acquisition of it becomes our guiding force, family, it could be an idol. When, when our identity is found in our achievements or our looks, and for many of you, you don't care, but for some, it's a, a significant thing. When social media posts give you your identity, our accomplishments can become an idol. When sports or movies or vacations become such a focus, then it might be an idol. What might be an idol that captivates your heart and mind. See, the family, the priority of Christ should be as strongly enforced in your head and your mind as is expressed in the first commandment of the Old Testament that we should honor the Lord God and not have any other God before us. And so we need to, to, to look down and take a hard look at, at the things that excite us. Now, I want you to understand, uh, on a practical way, I lost half an eye. You all know that. You want to know something? It turned out to be a thank of the Lord. Because quickly, it came up in my mind that I'm sitting on a beach in Mexico and I'm about ready to go in retirement. And all I could think of was how good I had it. It was really a wonderful thing. And as soon as my eye went, you know what came out? The man who tore down his barns and built bigger barns. And God looks down and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And you know something? What a great reminder for the next few years that half an eye is going to give me. Because the things that might excite me, I now have a corner to, of my eye to look up to and go, oh, yeah, it's not that exciting. So family, we need to remember what, what takes our eyesight away from his. What, what priorities do we end up being captivated by and find a diminishment in our walk with the Lord. Verses 10 and 12, 
They ask, what do we expect? If we're going to leave God with a sense of lost priority and create idols that, that take us far afield from Him, what should we expect? We should expect that when other gods captivate our hearts and minds, it affects our deep and dear connection with Christ. And that was the challenge that Asaph, the writer, would leave to the men and women of Israel. Since they would not listen nor submit to God, God just let them go to accomplish what their hearts wanted. And when they accomplished what their hearts wanted, it led to a breakdown in their society, in their social order, in their family life. It destroyed them. Family, these are not just anybody. Throughout the text of Scripture, verse 8, verse 11, and verse 13, he calls them very clearly, my people. The very same moniker that he gives you and I in 1 Peter. My people. My people. So this isn't just anybody. These are the people in relationship to him. So I don't want you to ever forget they worshipped, they sacrificed, they participated in what God expected them to participate Isaiah 29, verse 13, can say this, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. And so God simply looks down and tells them, I'm not a priority in your life. You've walked away from me. In the closing days before the Babylon destruction, you treated the temple of God as if it was a marketplace of worship. Choose the kind of God that you wanted, from Yahweh to any of these other choices that are around. And God says, when that happened, I simply allowed you to go where your heart's desire wanted. It can be exactly our problem today. Family, it's not that the world doesn't know God. It's as if God's people don't know God. Origen was a theologian who lived in the 200s of the Roman world. So 150 years or so after the spread of Christianity. He writes from Egypt. And this early believer would say, the strength of the believer in society today is that they know what God expects. The question that we have to ask is, do we know what God expects from us in relationship with Him? Do we recognize the importance of that walk? You see, we who should be enamored by Christ are often pursuing the desires of popular culture. In doing so, God allows us to follow our own counsel. 
When Christ is our priority, his impact is one of conquest. And what I mean by that is this. God says in Scripture, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't, won't stop me. Do you understand that picture? Hell is, is the city. Whenever a city saw a conquering force, they shut themselves up in the city, and it was the responsibility of the, the commanding army to come and take the city. It was an, an issue of, of conquest, of capture. God does the same thing to you and I. And he has a twofold conquest. First conquest is your and my heart and life in maturity. And so when he tells us in Romans chapter 12 that we should present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, he then tells us this in verse 2. Do not be transformed, or do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so one of the things he, that we do is first, he captures us. He transforms us. How many times have any of you looked down and having done X, you fill in the blank. You look down and say, you know, I don't think God would want me to do that. And it begins to change your life and impact you. And, and, and you begin to move. And nobody told you that you should or shouldn't do this. It might have even been a freedom that other people enjoy. But it was a tripping point, a, a, a stumbling block for you. And, and God simply began to talk to you. And you changed you because you felt like it made you a stronger believer. God captured your heart and your mind. But family... Once we captures our heart and mind, it has an impact elsewhere. That's why Jesus could say that you're salt. How do we have a, a privilege of salting the rest of the saltless world unless we're salty? We can't capture what we're not. So God tells us that you're a light on a hill. Well, if he has captured us, there's nothing on top that covers the light. You present who you are. All you have to do is live in a dark world and you show your light different than the dark world. First, we're captured. Then, we capture as part of God's army. I want you to notice, he closes this. What do we hope for? And so, from verses 13 to 16, he looks down and he paints an alternative picture for that opportunity to reevaluate, reaffirm, restore who we are. He gives us an alternative, and the alternative is one of blessing. Now, I'm convinced that God is poetically painting a picture of blessing here. Subdued enemies. Good food. Honey from the rock. These are poetic 
pictures. God didn't promise easy street. And any of you who have read the church's history knows that there's been gross periods of terrible treatment by the world. But yet, God's people prospered. The New Testament might say it this way. If God is for us, who can be against us? And I believe that's the core of knowing God's blessing. Because blessing ultimately is this. God is for us. And God is good to us. God is good to us. What that means is that we live blessed lives. And if you need any, any proof of that, let me suggest to you the most powerful one. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Forgive me, but what car could you ever want that would give you more satisfaction? What Victory could a football team, a basketball team, ever give you and I to give us greater satisfaction? What pursuit could accomplish more in our lives than the offer of salvation that's eternal? And the day will come that you and I get to see Jesus, Father, face to face. Family, why would a God who loves us so much to give His Son would ever deny us from anything that's useful to who we are and bringing Him glory on this earth? And possibly by not giving us what we hope for and desire. He ultimately is caring for us in such a way that in denial he is strengthening our character to provide for us an equipment and an ability to carry on in a way better suited for living the life that you have been placed in. So we come to the end and I want to encourage you to ask yourselves the hard questions. Where am I with Christ right now? Because if we're honest with one another, from time to time, every character that you're going to read in Scripture had to look themselves in the mirror and have those tough moments. David was a man after God's own heart. And yet how many stories of return did he have to have from one misadventure after another. Saul, Paul, probably had a pretty good temper. And we know, at least with Barnabas, there was a reorganization. You see, we don't have to be perfect people, just believing people. And in being believing people, God reminds us that we need to always keep sharp 
who we are in him. Father in heaven, I'd ask that you'd watch over. Dear God, be with CBC. Dear God, we have an, we, we have an exciting future because you're in it. Father, we have an exciting future because you offered us salvation and then offered us the privilege of being your family to represent your family to Central Point and to Jackson County. And so, dear God in heaven, please, I pray, continue in your equipping of us in the task. But dear God, since you've given us all the equipment that we need, may we be determined to the task. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast of Community Bible Church. Follow us on Facebook to keep up to date with all our latest content. Thank you.